1: It's time for the Life Writing Podcast with your hosts, authors and screenwriters Stephen Barnes and Tanana Reeve Dew. All about creating the project of your dreams while living a balanced artist life. Be the hero or heroine of your own story. Sponsored by LifeWritingPremium.com. Get ready to write for your life.
2: I'm Tanana Reeve Dew. Almost a year and a half ago, our very first guest on our brand new podcast was Roy Wood Jr. Now, how you may ask, did we lure this amazing stand-up comic, social commentator, and Daily Show correspondent to our teeny podcast and our listener, as I called it? (laughs) My husband and co-host Stephen Barnes and I had just recently appeared on his podcast, Beyond the Scenes from the Daily Show for a segment on black horror. So when I floated him an email, he was like, yeah. And now, after the departure of Trevor Noah from The Daily Show and rotating guest hosts, Roy Wood Jr. just finished his amazing week of hosting The Daily Show. And this dude's week happened to coincide with the Trump arraignment and revelations of the luxury vacation bribes received by Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. John Stewart made a guest appearance, and through it all, he managed to interview author Jerry Kraft about graphic novels and comics. Roy Wood Jr., we appreciate you. We'd love to see you killing the game, and thanks for believing in us and helping us believe we really were podcasters. Listeners, be sure to check out his tour dates around the country at RoyWoodJr.com. This is smart funny, aware comedy you do not want to miss. This Best of Life Writing episode with guest Roy Wood Jr. originally aired on January 16th, 2022. Welcome to the Life Writing Podcast, where married authors and screenwriters, Stephen Barnes and Tanana Dew, talk about writing during stressful times, breaking into Hollywood, and balancing life. Every week, we'll share more tips on how to build a better life, while you create your dream projects, even if it's only one sentence a day. And we have a special guest today that I can't wait to introduce. But first, Steve, let's check in with what's been going on with us in the past week since we launched our first episode. Well, you know, this is an intense time. There's a
1: lot of things going on. We're at the beginning of the year. And I think that it's really important at the beginning of the year to kind of look back over what you did last year and look at what you want to do in the next Twelve months, and just kind of say, you know, are my behaviors? If I do the same thing that I have been doing, am I going to get? Do I like where I'm going to get to? You know, you, and, and the best indicator of where you're going to go is where you've been. I mean, in the past doesn't equal the future, but looking at, you know, I took these actions, I felt this way, I connected with these people, and this, these are the results that I got over the last twelve months. So, if you feel like what you did is going to get you where you want to go, that's perfect. You can just zen it then. You can just forget about it. Let me just do what I do every day. Wake up, chop wood, carry water. So did you so, get closer this week? I think so. I mean, that's, that's the thing. I want to, you know, the, the core goal is to try to improve 1% every day about something. And that means, you know, getting a little bit better at being a husband and father, which is the most important thing. And then a little bit better at communicating and teaching and you know, sort of the writing and, you know, and, and the work in Hollywood and a little learn something new in terms of martial arts, yoga, you know, that aspect of my life. So if I look at things, you know, there are so many different things to kind of kind of balance. There is the graphic novel. We can go right down that because you're doing graphic stuff. I'm doing graphic stuff. Let's kind of stop there for just a moment because you talked about how working on a graphic novel, working on a comic book, in essence, is new for you. You're you're picking something new up.
2: And I'm not a spring chicken, people. Never too late, hashtag, because... uh, Listen, I have been curious about graphic novels for years. A very dear friend of mine who passed away in 2011, some of you may know her, author L.A. Banks. Her name was Leslie Banks, Our last email exchanges before she got ill were all about, oh, you need to get into graphic novels and never, you know, it's the same thing that kept me from trying screenwriting, trying to overcome the mystery of the formatting even kept me from trying screenwriting for years. And now, of course, we have apps that do that for us. But we had a great opportunity that came from a disappointment. We wrote a horror script called The Keeper that has had a couple different sets of producers trying to set it up. Haven't been able to set it up, but we sent it to John Jennings, an editor, Abrams Comic Arts. Megascope is his new imprint, and he loved it and said, hey, let's do it as a graphic novel. And we're going over the the colored pages right now, tweaking the dialogue. It's so much like a storyboard for a film that in a lot of ways, I feel like I'm getting my movie now. So The Keeper will be out later this year, and working on that is just such a thrill.
1: The thing that I'm working on, Eightfold Path with Charles Johnson, who wrote Middle Passage, uh, you know, MacArthur Genius Grant winner and, and you know just National Book Award winner, uh, Buddhist scholar, and just just a wonderful, wonderful guy. And because of him, I was able to get this dream project off the ground. I've been trying to get this project going for 10 years. It's basically, yes. you know, eight stories that are sort of EC comics, you know, Tales from the Crypt, Vault of Horror, so forth. On one level, that's all there. There's a war story. There's a, a martial arts story, so forth and so on. But underneath the sort of, you know, hey, hey, old Crypt Keeper stuff, there is a serious <laughs> intent that each of them represents one step in Buddhism's eightfold path to enlightenment, you know, right work, right action, right language, and so forth and so on. And John Jennings, once again, gave, gave us the opportunity to do this. And this will be coming out within about a month. So I definitely
2: I'll, need to get you and John Jennings and Charles Johnson. Absolutely. You know,
1: that's absolutely going to happen. But to, to, create something like that that has a serious intent but at the same time is a lot of fun and is an anthology uh, a collection of of short stories which have slightly different artistic styles it was quite a venture it, it really was and i'm i'm all i can do is keep my fingers crossed because all you can do ultimately is do the very best you can and then hope for the best the, the time lag between finishing the work and seeing any kind of response to the work can be you know, months, years, (laughs) you know, and you have to both care very much and not give a damn at the same time. You can't, you can't associate with it too strongly, but you have to associate with it strongly enough to give it the best you got. So, you know, these things, there's always something that we're writing. There's always something we're correcting. There's always something we're negotiating. There's always something that we're planning. You know, there are multiple different levels and you have to juggle them all in order to stay sane, you know? So, you know, how it's, what do you do? What do you do to keep stay in the center of that storm T?
2: Well, a couple things I'm becoming much better at meditating. Although I just mentioned to my therapist and let's not forget therapy. I just mentioned to my therapist that I don't tend to meditate as often when things are going great. And that's where I can go off the rails because you you have to practice being centered and in the moment all the time, good times and bad times. So I can be better about that. And also, it's also very centering for me yes. to be focused on our son, Jason. We are homeschooling Jason and... I, we had this amazing experience just yesterday where we we subbed one of the poems <laughs> from the from the online platform with Harlem by Langston Hughes. Let's talk about that. What happened to the Dream deferred? Let's talk about that poem and and go through it, and what does it mean? And I feel such joy of connection, passing on lessons my parents passed on to me, having more influence over his curriculum, seeing how he thinks in a way that we haven't been able to because we were not his teachers. And knowing that I have that daily obligation really helps me organize my time and prioritize what I'm working on.
1: Well, what that does is that leads to the thought of, oh, it, it isn't just that you would be violating your values or violating your mom's values. It is that when you clarify and it's like i'm doing this for my family you know why are you doing anything that you're doing i'm doing this for my family i'm doing this for the little boy inside me i'm doing this for my students or the people who come after me but if i sit in the moment and i feel that i'm balancing those things my family is okay that i'm being okay with my community i'm being okay with my spirit then i can simply just do what there is to be done. I can just have fun. I can just laugh. I can just be with Jason if I know that, you know, so we're reading a Langston Hughes poem, and it relates to our history. It relates to the Harlem Renaissance, but it also relates to the question, what happens to a dream deferred? It Does it explode? Anger, okay? Where does anger come from? Fear. What is the fear? That I will not be able to have my dreams, that I'll not just be destroyed, like getting shot down in the street by a cop. But I'm not going to be able to express myself and be who it is I want to be. And I noticed that when we were reading this to Jason and we asked him, what what does it mean? What does that last line mean? He got it because he knows that there have been times in his life when he wanted something, he wanted to create something, and there was an obstacle and it angered him. Why? Because he was afraid that the obstacle meant "I cannot," and so you respond with anger. Anger is how you mobilize that fear. To be able to take a lesson from the cultural to the to the you know literary to the personal and psychological, that turns me on. I I, lo- I love being able to look at at what it is that we are on all those different levels, and then that means I am engaged in the act of creation that my dad, my own father, never engaged in with me. To be able to be the father I wish I had had.
2: That's it. You're a great father. You're a great uh, father. That's I, one of the first things that uh, I love. My family. I noticed about you.
1: Well, we'll talk about that another time. Yeah, we but will we,
2: because we, we have will. such an amazing guest.
1: We really do. Someone who brings the emotion and the reality and turns it into laughter that makes you think in- introduction, please, Steve. Y'all
2: will not even believe it. This is our second podcast. We are so new to this that I accidentally didn't even tape audio for the other second podcast we taped last week.
1: <laughs> <laughs> we got backups with our backups this and time. <laughs> we
2: have already somehow scored such a great guest. Well, it's not somehow. Steve and I along with Dr. Robin R. Means Coleman, who wrote the, the book, Horror Noir, which is the history of Black horror, we were invited to the Daily Show podcast, Beyond the Scenes, hosted by Roy Wood Jr. And we had such an amazing conversation. That's going to drop sometime during Black History Month, I think. I'm pretty yes. sure. But based on that, we were kind of shy, like, can we promote our new podcast at the end of the show? And and this gentleman right here not only let us talk about our podcast, he said, I want to be a podcast, ladies and gentlemen, Daily Show correspondent and no BS, because in Hollywood people use the fan the word fan so casually. This I am a huge fan. Literally, this is one of my favorite comics. I am so excited to have comic and Daily Show correspondent Roy Wood Jr.
3: Well, hello. <laughs> I hello, hello and good evening and happy Martin Luther the King Jr. month to you. Yes. Happy, 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 happy.
2: Absolutely. Let's not forget, Doctor Dr. Reverend King.
3: Luther the King. <laughs> <laughs> I have put it in. Put it in any order. That's ah. uh, respect.
1: You yeah. know, he had to have had a dream that we would we would love him and hear him enough that one day we could both stay on the path and laugh about it.
3: Yeah, yeah, you know, that's that's definitely a good thing. That's really interesting about your son and just the reading that you all, it, it makes me feel a little bit more normal about my upbringing. You know, my father was a civil rights journalist and covered everything from, you know, the South African riots way back in the day in Soweto to the Rhodesian Civil War and civil rights in Vietnam. And and you best believe it was some black literature in my face yes. every damn day. And I lucked up. You know, and I don't know anything about your your child's school system, but I looked up because you know, growing up in Birmingham, it was right at the it was right in the middle of white flight. Oh my so god! The school system was becoming blacker and blacker every year in the eighties, and so it was not uncommon to be assigned a couple of black authors every now and then. You know, and knowing what I know now, we probably got assigned Richard Wright a year or two too early, but I know. We- <laughs> Richard Wright low key was angry. He was, little, he was a little angry. a little bit, yeah. Some tough stuff. In there. Yeah, some tough stuff. Like first page, you done burnt the house down? Should I be reading this in the fifth grade? <laughs> but I understand it because I know that those were black teachers who was like, Aye, right, now that y'all ain't gotta read The Hobbit, let me give you some of this real shit.
2: Exactly. You know? Exactly.
3: You know you all are it, it was it was refreshing to hear that, and you all are one thousand percent doing the right thing. My child is five, and I'm trying to decide when to pop the seal on racism. You know, I've made him aware I'm slowly making him aware that he is black and that you are great and uplifting. You are good, like building up the layers of resiliency that he'll need later, yes. But letting him know which missiles will soon be headed his way towards his psyche. Yes. I have not cracked the seal on that
1: yet. You know, in doing know. that, to, to let him know that he has to be strong without making him
2: hate. And afraid. Because,
1: because and afraid. They, well, right. it's, it, to me, it's okay to acknowledge you have fear. All human beings feel fear. In that fear, if you don't process it directly, turns into and pretends that it's just anger. Whereas what's really going on is is the fear. So you can be strong. You can also have an attitude. You know, whatever it is, you have managed to navigate the world beautifully. The attitudes that you have are therefore, to the degree that you've done that, healthy. They're healthy attitudes. Tell, just show him your heart. Show him who you've been, and then he'll, he'll stand on your shoulders and see further.
3: Yeah, that's what I hope. I hope that he can just find these breadcrumbs. The, the luxury that my son will have that I didn't with my father is being able, after I'm dead and gone, to find a couple of interviews. Like, you want to find my daddy talking to somebody, you need a cassette player, you need a reel-to-reel. <laughs> <Like> you <laughs> you, you got to, it's, it's a whole effort
1: to digitize. Yeah, you need to digitize all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it, with, it, Put it someplace on a YouTube channel. Nothing, you know, so that it will be there forever. That is his legacy. Yeah. To understand, you know, and I, t- to me, and I've talked to Tananaev about this. The thing that most fascinates me about you is that you've turned that that pain into laughter. Yeah. You have transmuted the pain and the fear that you feel, the anger that you feel, into laughter in a healthy way. See. How, to me, that's magic. I mean, I know how to do that with with a scream. You know, trans, it tur- turning turning fear into a scream within releases the tension. That's why. We but love you it. and oh, Jordan Peel, so people like you, are doing are playing a different game. So I really wanted to ask you, how do you do it? When you take something like your your routine about the African American History Museum, God. there is oh, real implicit pain in that routine, but you turn it into hysterical laughter. That helps keep you sane, my brother. How do you do that?
3: I We are all walking a similar walk, especially if you're Black, right? And so for me, the root, like the base, like the base tenements of my comedy is this is comedy for Black people about the Black experience. Now, you can put it under a bunch of bright lights. You can put it on Comedy Central But at the end of the day, this is comedy that when a joke does what I want it to do, a white person goes, wow, I didn't know that. And a black person should watch it and go, that's what I've been trying to tell y'all.
1: Amen.
2: Yes. Well put. If the
3: joke can do that with the same sentence, then that's that's a joke worth keeping. The Civil Rights Museum, man, that whole thing came about. Because I started noticing at a lot more, and this is post Trayvon Martin. This is a, this is a long time ago. Cause the joke you're talking about, that's from my first hour special.
2: I know. You came out the gate. 2017.
3: So in that one, I'd observed, you know, a little bit well, just more white people volunteering at blackety black stuff. And I was like, Oh, that's interesting. And I had made a comment about it to a friend of mine and We kind of got into a debate back and forth just about what you want a white person leading a tour of a black history museum. And so there are the pros and cons of it's our history. What are you doing? But if you're wanting to support the culture in some sort of way, more power to you. But then with my comedy, what I'm trying to do, if that's the surface level discussion, then what is the angle on this issue that we haven't considered? and when you go to a new place that people haven't thought about before then it kind of gives you carte blanche to be explorative because yeah i don't want white folks to do it it's our history okay y'all can have that argument but what was the job application process like <laughs> if you're white and you work for a silver is it is it a different interview do they at how woke do you have to be you know like
0: Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N.
2: Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE.
3: Just that nonsensical exploration gives you an opportunity to deviate off of the pain and deviate away from the actual spine of the issue and then come back to the act, when I say spine, I I refer to that as the base level train of thought or the issue at hand, mm-hmm. and that's the stuff that's a little bit more emotionally volatile. You know, like in,
1: so, you're I, looking for the emotional the, the emotional volatility.
3: Correct. You start there, and then you swerve off of that, and then you come back to what's real. So, like in my in my most recent special, imperfect messenger, the and this was just more of a throwaway on the way to a bigger point I was trying to make. But to the Civil Rights Museum point, I talked about how when you go to a Civil Rights Museum, you are still angry. You look up at the wall and a lot of the people in those pictures, the white people, they're still alive. And so there is a anger that comes with it. There is a frustration that comes in knowing that these people did these terrible things. There's proof of it. And they still out here walking free next to you at Costco and Rite Aid.
2: Like the woman who lied on Emmett Till. How there is she go. still alive? Am dead in 1955?
3: chilling out there, chilling in the world. So that's the spine. The joke was, that's why at civil rights museums now, they put all the positive black shit at the exit right before you leave so that you don't <laughs> get mad. And, and so that joke was birthed from my trip to the African-American Smithsonian in DC, which that was the first time that I'd seen a civil rights museum. Well, I guess Atlanta to a degree too. But that was the first time I saw something where, all right, on this floor, it's nothing but good news. Mm. We've gone through slavery. We've gone through desegregation and Emancipation Proclamation and Reconstruction. But on this floor, Beyonce, Michael Jordan, Issa Rae. Thank you for coming. (laughs)
2: Love right. it! I love it. Let me ask you a question, Roy, because I see uh, a couple of similarities in our backgrounds. You are the son of a, a civil rights journalist. I'm the daughter of civil rights activists. I, I was born on the campus of Florida A and M University, where you attended. That's yes. where my mother was arrested, and as the child of two, my father's John Dew is a lawyer, still living today, 87 years old, and. They were literally in my history books. Like in college, I could open the index and, like you said, in your your routine. The man said, "Oh, that's me in the picture right there. Yeah. <laughs> like that's my mom in the book right there." And I, you know, I really feel like if my parents had told me there was no value in pursuing art, I would not be a writer. Both of my sisters are lawyers. You know, with that influence, like change the world, set the world on fire. But my mother, Patricia Stevens, do really did lay it down for me that representation is important. The Beverly Hills Hollywood branch of the NAACP got a bunch of support in the 1960s because they understood how important representation was. Did you have that support from family entering the arts?
3: I would say yes. My father passed when I was 16. I didn't start stand-up until I was 19. My mother, my mother, though, my mother, you know, she's been in higher education, you know, for 30 years, the last 20 you know, at a black college, and she was also, you know, in her day, she was she was in the first group of students to integrate Delta State University in Mississippi. So my mom, everything was rooted in educating yourself and achieving more. So I'll say this about my mother: my mother has not always agreed with my career choices, but she has always encouraged them. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense, it makes total you know, sense. Like there was, you know, when I wanted to be an astronaut, she sent me up to Huntsville to space camp. When I wanted to be a firefighter. She found people that were firefighters and got them to give me books on chemistry so I could be a fire inspector. Don't just be a firefighter, go to the next level with the thing. And so when she found out I was doing comedy, you know, I kept that a secret for, you know, almost a year. Mm. And then one of her students caught me at an open mic and then Ran his stupid mouth. And that's how she found out. She found out from one of her students. And so, you know, we went back and forth for, you know, a while on it. But the only thing she stressed was, you better be down there getting them grades. I don't agree with it. And at the time, I was still riding the bus. You know, You know, just get them grades. I don't know what you're doing. If that's what you want to do, fine. But make sure you get them grades. And I go, look, if I make good grades, then you cannot you cannot argue with me about you don't get to question this anymore. And she was like, fine. I said, fine. So I went and got them grades and made sure I got my degree in broadcast journalism. And my mother got me a car so I would stop sleeping at the bus station. Mm-hmm. And she bought Beautiful. me- You know, well, let me take that back. I do not give it to me. She put the down payment. I had to- pay- <laughs> <laughs> Just
2: keep it real, keep it real. Let's correct pick up the record note. here.
3: But my mom got me a 2000, it was the first model year to Ford Focus. It was 2000- uh, 2001, she got me a Ford Focus so I wouldn't have to sleep in that bus station. So even when she didn't completely understand, she always supported. But she also knew the value of that degree because when I graduated, that degree, that broadcast degree, that's what got me my job in radio, which got me the growth in comedy. You know, it's one thing to just be a funny chuckle dude and try and get an internship. But when you're funny and you have the paperwork to back up that you know the technical side of the job, it takes you even higher. I mean, to this day, I'm riding that. The Daily Show ain't nothing but a mix of the two things that me and my mama was arguing about back in 98. Journalism and comedy. Yeah.
2: Yes. it's a How comedy, You, you, you spent your whole you need life getting run in
3: journalism. Yes. Yeah.
2: That's so funny, you know, because journalism uh, now is a little dicey <laughs> as a career. When I was in college, that was a big, that was a thing. My parents said, "Get that journalism degree; that's your guarantee for work." You know, you Them can do kids that. Kids would advice. They'd be like, "What do you?
3: What advice do you have for a young journalist?" I'm like, "Man, I don't even know. What to tell you, brother."
2: Well. People still get hired every day. That's true. Yeah. And when people ask me about,
1: you know, should I go into a, a master's in fine arts program? Should I study creative writing? My attitude is, no, study journalism and acting. That journalism for learning how to represent the world, have discipline and, and interact with the money people. Acting to be able to step into the, the middle of a character, to see the world from the position yeah. of the character, rather than acting from the outside in. That you have those two things. And I think- you have the basics that you need to be a writer. So journalism, I, I think that that as long as human beings have, being, have been human beings, people have wanted to hear stories about what they did not experience personally, what's happening over the hill, what happened yesterday, what happened before I was born. So the form may change and will change and is changing drastically, but our interest in hearing stories Will continue. So, what we have right now is a situation where it's very easy for that, that stream of information to be polluted. You, you can't, you know, who's telling the yeah. truth? Who is it? Nobody has a reputation. People can say anything they want to on these sites, and it's damaging our society.
3: The problem also is that opinions are also seen as fact now, and a lot of networks peddle in opinions the majority yes. of the day. So, what the hell is journalism now? Because, like, when when you know when the young students ask me, and like, I'm fearful every time I'm invited to do some classroom Zoom Q and A, academia discussion with the students about the state of the, because I don't know what to tell them. Because you could be a hard journalist, yes, you could pursue the stories, but. When you look at local news now, so much of that is rip and read, and it's corporate ownership, and it's so half of the stuff that's really making a difference is going to get stifled. So you almost have to to work freelance, but then how do you keep food on the table and keep your lights on without even off the dollar menu for the next five years while being a freelancer? So it's it's very difficult that you almost have to blend between the two to a degree. And yes, I, and I and I tell people that you know. Creative writing in and of itself is a form of journalism. Mm. You know, comedy is journalism. Script, yes. you're If you're speaking to an issue, you're speaking to something that has a spine, you're just altering the delivery method in which someone gets the information. You could be a hardcore journalist or you could write sketch. You
1: do sketch comedy and do the same thing. So you're using the word spine to mean the intrinsic truth. What is the truth of this situation? Is that accurate? Correct. Correct. Okay. So once you see what the truth of the situation is, then in journalism, you try to relate that truth directly. And in something like comedy, you exaggerate it to get a laugh. that allows you you to have perspective.
3: What is the best delivery vehicle for this particular truth? And then that becomes the wider conversation. All right. I I give you a perfect example. So when all the rah-rah was happening at Howard University with the students last year and everything that the students in the administration, they were bumping heads and it was making national news. And on the surface, the issue is students mistreated by college and the dorm room just got mold and rats and roaches, whatever, whatever the argument was between those two. Right. As an HBCU grad, I view that as family business. And I go, all right, Hmm. that's not the story that I would have told nationally. The larger conversation is that because when you look at like, like if when mainstream media got a hold of that story, right, that story is about Howard and Howard's dorms and the way Howard and the Howard students when the bigger spine of the issue is the relationship between HBCUs and the federal government, especially the smaller, lesser-known HBCUs, and the allocation of funding?
2: Funding, ding, that's, ding, ding. That's what I heard me.
3: with that story, Roy. It's, but it's not just Howard's funding; it's everybody's funding. Yeah. Like, like so. To me, that's the story. So then it becomes like it just for for the Daily Show's sake. I'm just walking through like how a Daily Show segment can eventually come to fruition it's that conversation will be had over a writer's meeting and our field meeting. Okay, well, do we want to go down to Howard? you're like, no, I don't want to go down to Howard. What I want is a panel of HBCU presidents. Give me a bunch of black college presidents so they can all tell me what's going on. And then I'm gonna go sit with whoever in the Biden administration is supposed to be hearing these complaints. You know, like that's the conversation or the conversation is with some of the black college presidents who sat down with Trump Four or five Hmm. years ago, and Mm -hmm. ask them, how's it going now? And not in some gotcha Jordan Clepper kind of way, but just go, hey man, did you get what? Did old boy give you what he said he was going to give you? No? Okay, well, what is it you need? And I think that's where you have to look at journalism as this vessel to be able to tell many different stories, many different ways. You know, I think that the most interesting thing with race that's starting to happen now within storytelling. You know, when you look at we Lovecraft Country is a is a great example of a story that uses, you know, monsters and a little bit of sci-fi, but it talks about the trauma of racism, the generational trauma of it. You know, there my comedy does not exist in that past of racism. Like it, like it's like it's got, like you gotta kind of split racism into three quadrants in storytelling, at least what I this is how. No, I, what, about. what are they? What you done to us? What's happening right now? What you done to us? What you doing to us? Solutions. Mm-hmm. Mm. And so my comedy traditionally, I try to exist in saying what's happening. And then wild, weird solution that nobody would ever really rock with. That's not going to, you know,
1: that's critical. I love it. You, you can't get the way to come to an to get an answer is to have permission to say stupid stuff, to say impossible things. That's how you get to the solution
2: you know, it's, and it's interesting you say that because, you know, Steve, you know, in the past, certain presidential administrations have brought in science fiction writers, right, to try to come up with solutions or quest, answer questions. We, maybe we do need a bunch of comedy writers <laughs> to come together and come up with some of these solutions, right? I don't think it's... Yeah. Well, it would
1: break people there. out of the boxes. And that's when the, the solution is going to be something, you know, the, the answer for how to get out of the box is written on the outside of the box. So it's comedians and fantasists and people like that who can say crazy shit, who can say stuff that makes no sense at all. Somebody will accidentally say something that could actually be the solution. It'll if work. you give, you know, a hundred monkeys and 100 <laughs> a hundred typewriters,
3: one of them going to type a sentence.
2: So, so, Roy, let me ask you this. I know some of our listeners uh, who know your work and are themselves aspiring comics are always very curious about those those first real opportunities. So you started in radio Oh, well, you were doing stand up for the time of 19. I was
3: doing stand up concurrently with morning with my morning radio internship.
2: Is Is there a moment that you look back on as your big break in comedy or was it a series of smaller moments? Or a combination of
3: smaller moments, I can draw back every single thing that I've done to something that preceded it. I, mm. don't, I think I can only speak to the arts, mm-hmm. but I believe that our careers, at least in the arts, especially in stand up and acting and stuff like that, you get two to three real opportunities every year to skip a level or truly advance your career. And you're either prepared in those moments, or you fumble the moment, or you don't realize that that moment was the moment.
1: Right.
2: Yes.
3: I can think of a writer's
2: room I passed on that I look back on now. I was like, oh, what was I thinking? (laughs) Mm
1: -hmm. But that's in in retrospect. In retrospect, retrospect. most people don't think they get any opportunities at all. You say that from your experience in watching other people, there are about two to three. You know, every quarter. You know, every. It's minor. Three out of a year,
3: but you're gonna get you're gonna get a couple opportunities, and some of them they're gonna be before you think you're ready for them. You know, I could take you back ninety nine. You know, when I I had an opportunity to open for Tommy Davidson, but it was during midterms, and it was with a club booker that booked about sixty percent of the comedy clubs in the south. So to have a career as a road comedian, you have to be in with this man. Mm-hmm. And this man called me. And I flunked three classes. And I'm not saying that that was the wisest thing to do. (laughs) And, you know, it cost me a semester of school. But that gig opened up the entire Eastern Seaboard for me. So when I graduated, I had a real way to make money. And, you know, there's, there's these little moments, you know, where you know, when I look back at radio, you know, I started doing mornings. Oh, this is a great example. So I started doing mornings. This was, this was ages ago. Like the thing I always try to tell people is just be kind to people as well. Be kind to everybody, especially the people under you and the people across from you, you know, don't worry about trying to network up as they say, but more importantly, be nice to people, especially when you don't need anything from them. There was a gentleman, and I've told this story, I haven't told it often, but when I was writing for the campus paper, I did album reviews for rappers. That was one of it, because at the time I wanted to be in print, I wanted to write for the source, and I wanted to do I wanted to be the premier album reviewer. So let me review Trick Daddy and Trina and you know all of these, you know, southern rappers or whatever. And I get an opportunity to write a review for a rapper that's pretty lesser known for a record label that's not that known. All right, fine, I'll review the album. It's yeah, you know, it's not it's not a big deal for me. It turned out it meant a lot to that record label because when you get one review, it helps to get other reviewers at bigger and better publications yes. to review said album or whatever. And so you know the the rapper's career didn't really go anywhere, but the man who ran that label. He never forgot that. And so (laughs) years later, his name is TJ Chapman. So TJ Chapman, at the time, I was doing prank phone calls in Birmingham. This is years later after I wrote this album review. And I'm doing prank phone calls. And the idea that I had at the time was to take my prank calls and syndicate them to other radio stations in markets where I wasn't getting booked at the local comedy club. So with the idea being... We play our prank calls once or twice on the air. And it was a blessing because Ricky Smiley had already left. And the new radio jock who wanted, who who hired me to replace Ricky, he says, I need you to do prank calls. I go, that's Ricky's thing. That's not my thing. He goes, well, you figure out if you want a job or not. <laughs> we need you to do prank. You can do anything else creatively you want because I wanted to do all of this different stuff to prove that I wasn't Ricky Smiley. And They go, you can do all of that. But also, you have to do this, which taught me a valuable lesson about meeting an audience where they are and then drawing them creatively into the different things that you want to explore instead Beautiful. of forcing people, True. instead of forcing change on people. True. So, I got these print calls. I don't know what to do with them. I'm trying to get them in the hands of radio DJs and other places. So, TJ Chapman in Tallahassee, he does at the time, I think they still do it, it's, it's a record pool. And so, Back in the old days, children, radio DJs and club DJs would get together once a quarter and spin records for each other in a nightclub. And yeah. you would leave with this goodie bag full of regional rap songs that you could add to your mix CDs or add to your rotation on the radio and stuff like that. And that's how a lot of new music was spread around the South, was through this physical meeting, you would see new artists perform. You would meet so-and-so DJ from Atlanta. He would meet so-and-so DJ from New Orleans. What you playing in New Orleans? Cool. Well, look at what I'm playing in Atlanta. And TJ Chapman's job was to take all of that music and put it in a nice, neat grab bag for every DJ to take back to their region. So I drive down to Tallahassee because I'm a face-to-face kind of person. I'm not big on phones, if if I can help it. And I sit with TJ and I just go, hey, man, it would be a blessing if I could put one of my prank call CDs in that grab bag so that my pranks could spread on mixtapes, which would give me more leverage to getting on the air terrestrially. And TJ said, yes. And that's something that he never had to do. And that conversation, its a t- I drove five hours for a 10 minute conversation that opened up 30 cities for me. And by the end of that summer, my print calls were syndicated
1: in fifty markets. Amen. And Beautiful that, strategy. That
3: and those pranks being on the air. Now I can call the comedy club and go. You may not like me, but there is no. Other, and I was still an opener. I'm mm-hmm. an opener with access to promotion, so I have value. And and this is where not knowing not knowing what you don't know to your point about the writers' room. I didn't realize it at the time that I was bringing an audience and that an audience is what the clubs value because they believe that you have an inherent value ability to put asses in seats. Right. I totally blew off social media. Now you want some advice, some advice for the youngins that are listening. Don't inherit the goals of your ancestors. Don't inherit the goals of your predecessors. Anybody that is ahead of you is doing it a way that you can't do it. Mm. So take a pinch of what they were doing And then apply and trust your instincts to whatever it is you think you want to go, wherever it is you think you need to be doing. I made the mistake of idolizing everybody that I opened for. who all came up in an era where TV was the be all end all.
2: Mm -hmm.
3: You got to get on Letterman, man. You got to get on Leno, man. You got to get on Def Jam, man. You got to get on Comic View, man. I did them all, but by the time I got to all of them, like there was a time when you do David Letterman, it'd be a dude off to the side of the stage with a box of careers for you to choose
2: from. <laughs> exactly, you get your TV series deal, right? Choose your path. Well, let, let <laughs> me ask. Side. Let me
1: ask a serious question. Everything that you mentioned, you know, Def Comedy Jam and Letterman and doing this and doing that, them all. these were these were all ways of 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 tapping into an audience. Correct. Okay, but the the medium changes the intent. To, to find an audience that you can then bring to whatever platform that you're doing. It would seem to me that the intent has not changed. It's the medium or the method that changes. So if you look at what the previous generation did and ask what were they trying to accomplish as opposed to the question, how did they accomplish it? Yeah, how they yeah. accomplished it changes. What they were trying to accomplish remained the same. Is that and accurate?
3: That is extremely accurate because then you just change your methodology to achieve the same goal. I'll ah. my... I'll tell you my writer's room that I turned down, quote unquote. So I started selling my prank call CDs, this merch on the road. And we had a radio station. The webmaster at the radio station was, he was lazy. I could say that. Well, he was only going to do what they paid him to do. Mm -hmm. and He wasn't going to do nothing extra. So I go to him. I go, yo, man. These pranks do really well. We play, we do a new prank every morning. And I worked hard at these pranks. It takes an hour to get one decent prank phone call. So every day I'm grinding and we're playing these shits once and never holler back unless I put it on a CD. We do a best of on a Friday or like if we're a holiday break show or something. So I go, hey man, people should have access to this stuff. So would you mind adding these pranks to your web, to the station's website? This is O2. Like, this concept of streaming audio, this was not a thing. Not not here. So I go, would you mind?
0: Man, I'm not going
3: to – no, I don't know about that. No, I'm not putting the audio uh, – we'd have to get permission. I go, never mind, man. So I went and I taught myself Microsoft front page and I built my first website. Boom. Man, that's not necessarily teaching yourself HTML. I don't want nobody to be too impressed. But <laughs> – Microsoft front page, that was the WordPress of its era. Basic templates that mirrored Microsoft Word. And you create websites that look like Microsoft Word pages or whatever. And and it was, a, it was efficient enough. So I put my pranks up my damn self. Plug my website. Two weeks later, my website crashes every day because of lack of server space. Because people have been taking the links off my website and emailing them. And this is back when you went viral over email. So... Mm. People would email the link to my website and so many people were downloading my pranks. I literally could not keep up with the server space for two wow. weeks. So then somebody, I think 04, 05, somewhere in there, YouTube happens. And people were taking my pranks off of my website and putting them on YouTube. And this is when you went to YouTube just to listen to stuff. YouTube was not a visual medium per se. It would just be a static photo and you would just listen to whatever the hell, you know. And one of them youngins, hey man, this MySpace thing, man. You need to look into that and some of that YouTube stuff. I really be seeing your stuff a lot on YouTube. Shut up, motherfucker. Ain't nobody fucking with that computer stuff. I'm gonna be on David Letterman.
1: <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah. My my original YouTube account and I'm not lying when I say this my original youtube account that i set up and i posted 3 times a year on in 2005 had almost 200,000 subscribers
2: what? 3 times a year 200,000 subscribers and no cute cat videos what
3: <laughs> i i just had audio but I didn't nurture it every day. I didn't engage with the audience. I didn't plug my shows on it. I didn't do anything with it. And then eventually I was just posting whatever I wanted to post on it. And I posted, I got too many copyright strikes and they killed my account. And when you think about the exponential growth of what YouTube has become, I was in damn near a quarter million off the rip. What would that number be today? What would the worth be of that audience be today?
2: And you, you weren't know, even trying that hard. <laughs> I was not
3: trying. I was not trying. And yeah. that that part of it is just a valuable lesson in understanding which way technology is going and where people's viewing trends are going and where people feel things are going, you know. Yeah. I think that part of it is is imperative for young people to pay attention to.
1: Don't even to what would have happened if you'd had a Roy Wood fan club sort of thing. You, you know, have them send you their email addresses so you're keep, if you keep... Don't yeah. even
3: get started with me on the lack <laughs> of not even having an email capture link on your yes.
1: website, yes. website. Yes, yes. You could have had all of so if YouTube cancels your account, who cares?
3: <laughs> but you're not thinking like that in 03. You're no. not, That's right. Especially not at 22 years
1: old. That's no, here, point. no, no, no. You're not so, there's a 22-year-old who's here and this is going to get it.
3: Dude, <laughs> Kevin Hart told a story Kevin Hart told a story. I don't remember who podcast when years ago. He told a story about he was big enough after Soul Plane. He was selling out the comedy clubs, adding shows. Even could have gone to theaters that year, but instead spent another year going through all the comedy clubs again just to collect email
2: addresses. Oh, that's yeah, that he very canny in terms of work how uh, to. Collect that money. Controlling <laughs> his audience
3: at the source. There you
1: go. Because you own that list nobody, yes. you know, and, and you download it and make sure that nobody can take that from you. And the, now, my,
3: The biggest mistake I've ever made in my career is ignoring the technological trends that have come and not respecting them as true changes in the guard. I am not going to sleep on the metaverse. I don't know much about NFTs and crypto and all of that. But I can tell you the metaverse is weird. It's hard to explain, but it feels very similar to the conversations people had when they were trying to explain Twitter to me. And I called them stupid, too.
2: Listen, when you figure it out, let us know, because I'm still trying to figure it it out. (laughs) (laughs) It's fantasy land. Go do the same
3: shit digitally that you do in real life. And because because we from the go out generation, it seems weird. But it's going to be a lot of people that aren't from a go out generation, and this pandemic is creating a lot of people that are now former go out generation. True, who are going to be more than happy to go to some weird three D Sim City ass. it's the Sims for real.
2: Okay,
1: All I right. would like to very briefly, very very That's briefly why. ask you ask you a question because I know Tonari is <laughs> dying to ask you something else. In the midst of a pandemic, looking back on. Things you might have done, looking at frustrations in your life, those things have got to knock you off center. I, I have this belief that in life, they pay you for how much stress you can take without cracking. So how do you deal with stress in your life? How do you stay balanced? The child helps.
2: Yes.
3: Yes. Children have a way of allowing you to forget what what is bothering you or remembering why you worked so
1: hard. There you go. Clarity of values.
3: Yeah. You know, I I steal moments, you know, I go to therapy. I don't consider therapy relaxing. <laughs> it helps, but I don't think that's like, like, I'm not a spa guy. Like, I don't take three-day trips. I would love to, but like, I steal moments. You know, I'm the guy that gets there early. Like, sometimes I get to set an hour early just so I can sit, mm. just to sit. Video games help. For me, I found that being alone helps. You know, the trick with that is not allowing other people to make you feel a certain kind of way because you want space. Or making you feel like you have to explain yourself to them. That's the part I still kind of struggle with.
0: Mm-hmm. But
3: you know, it, it's 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 small things, you know, like there's days where like if I like if if I had two flight options, right? and one of them is a 45-minute layover and the other is a four-hour layover, sometimes I'll just choose the four. Right. And then just sit at the airport and have a meal.
0: Like Right.
3: Th- there's, I have to pick these moments to deliberately slow things down, because if I don't, then I'll just keep working, because I love what I do and it makes me happy. But, you know, you also have to cordon off time for other things. That's right.
2: I love that. That's a great answer. Really quickly, you've been so generous with your time. You kind of referenced when we were taping your podcast that you had a couple of horror stories in your career. What is a situation that, that would qualify as a horror story?
3: Ooh, job-wise? <laughs> yes. Or just career Career in general? Ooh. Career
2: in general or job. It's all part of the same thing. You mentioned something about booking and losing a job.
3: In, ooh, in this- ooh. Oh, 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 you talking about, should I say the show? I guess I can. It was Wipeout on ABC. And I I, I can't prove it, but I'm pretty sure this is what happened. I, d- d- yeah, that's the advice to young people. Don't say nothing more than what needs to be said at an audition. Keep your mouth shut, do your job, leave the room. Don't try to be <laughs> nobody's friend. Okay. Nobody wants to be your friend. They just want to employ you and they want you to do good because they don't want to be in the room all day looking at people that are terrible. So do your job and go home. I was auditioning to be the, like the sidekick joke dude on Wipeout. This is the first iteration, not the, not the Rob Riggle run that I think they did before, but I don't know. Oh, seven, Oh eight, somewhere in there. And I felt like I had was, was a solid audition. And you know you've had a good audition because as you're leaving, they ask you, "Yeah, so what's your schedule next week?" You be like, "Ooh, y'all trying to, y'all trying to book a nigga quick, ain't you?" And so, so I was excited about that. And as I'm leaving, I look on the table, and oh, I know what year it was. It was the year after the Celtics won the championship. So I think that was 2008 when Kevin Garnett and Paul Pierce or whatever. So this had to be oh nine or something. Or it was the same season, right? As I'm leaving the audition, I see a Kevin Garnett, like, poster or shirt or something on the table. And at the time, the Celtics were not playing good basketball. And I just made a just I was like, oh, Celtics fan. Well, last year was good, but I'm sure this year is tough for you, huh? Just, just... Being a, just giving you a little bit of just shit. I wasn't, I didn't mean it. Hey, man, the Celtics struggling, huh? And the guy goes, one of the guys in the room, he goes, Roy, where are you from? I'm from Alabama. How's Alabama's NBA team doing this year, Roy? We don't have a team. Exactly. We'll be in touch. Ooh. Oh. And I never heard from Wipeout again.
2: Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, so just oh. keep your mouth shut. Keep Yeah, your mouth sales shut. say that, man.
1: When you've made the sale, stop talking.
3: Yeah, I ain't saying that I booked the show, but I know that the mood changed immediately the moment I talked shit about his basketball team.
2: <laughs> that reminds um, me. Whoever
3: that was, if that gets back to you, I'm sorry.
2: Not knowing what to say. Uh, Celtic okay. The Celtics still ain't one shit. What about that? The Celtics still ain't won shit. How about that? How about that? This has been incredible. Can you can you let our our listener know? I mean, our listeners know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. we got more than one. Come on. We actually got it. We, we did pretty well. Believe in yourself. Week. We did pretty well. Let our <laughs> listeners know what you got coming up. What do you want to plug? Any tour dates? Do you have any projects? I got nothing
3: to plug, but my but my my podcast, Royce Job Fair. Wherever you listen to podcasts, it's up there. We just tell employment stories, good or bad, and help people you know be better at what they do
1: beautiful that's great Beautiful. you know i i like to try to extract something from what has been said that i think is the most important thing and i would say with with you you've touched on this many times clarity of values you know why you're doing it you know what your life is about you know what you enjoy and sometimes you just need to be by yourself and tune out the noise and just kind of listen to your own heart play with Absolutely. your child, eat a meal, take care of those basic things to recenter yourself and stay in the center of the storm, my man. Um, yes, thank you so much for these dro- dropping these pearls of wisdom with humor and real heart. You know, for yes. us, you know, lifewritingpodcast.com is how you found us. LifeWriting weekly is our mailing list. And Life Writing Premium It's our sponsor, pays our bills. It pays <laughs> it pays our bills. It's our year long writing. You know, it's 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 talking to us every week, you know, at your at your own pace. You every week you get a new lesson and it is the the best it's the best of the best of what we've been teaching and gathering over 30 years. And you can find out about that at LifeWritingPremium.com.
2: Yeah, I have essays uh, from when I was teaching creative writing and screenwriting at Antioch University. I lectured at the Geneva Writers Conference, videos, the lessons, PDFs. Every week, a new module, you take it in your own pace. So check out www.lifewritingpremium.
1: Yeah. For me, I, you know, they say you find out who your perfect audience is and you aim it at that. My perfect audience is pretty much a 20 year old, 25 year old version of me. What did I want to know? What did I need to know? What would have made a difference? So we're, we're trying very, very hard to leave that trail of breadcrumbs to help other people because other people helped us. It's as simple as
2: that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Roy Wood Jr. Thank you so much for making the time. Thank
1: you all
3: to come on our second
2: podcast and (laughs) we can't wait wait to hear beyond the scenes when that comes out the daily show podcast we'll keep our eyes open for that one. all right everybody thank you everybody have a great week and make yourself the hero or heroine of your own story
1: you've been listening to the life writing podcast join us next time for more conversations about creating the project of your dreams For more information, go to lifewritingpremium.com and get ready to write for your life.